Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hello, Heart of Healthcare listeners. This is your host, Hallie Tecco. This is our 93rd episode of the Heart of Healthcare show, and I have a very quick favor to ask. Could you take a quick moment to leave us a review? You don't even have to leave comments. Just giving us five stars helps us improve in the rankings and get the show out to more people. Thank you so much. Today, I'm chatting with the winner of our Heart of Healthcare $50,000 grant challenge. Dr. Denali Fernando is the executive director of the Libertas Center, located at Elmhurst Hospital in Queens, New York. Libertas provides survivors of torture and human rights violations in the New York City area with comprehensive medical, mental health, social, and legal services to help them regain function and lead healthy, confident, and hopeful lives. Dr. Fernando, congratulations on the grant. Thank you so much, Hallie. Um, We can't express how excited our whole team is to have had the opportunity to present our work and to share about what we do on your platform. We're so grateful to you, the Heart of Healthcare, all your reviewers, all your listeners, and the 653 individuals who voted for us. So grateful. Thank you very much for having us. Yeah, it was such an incredible group of finalists and you want to be, I want everyone to win. It's always really hard, but our listeners, you know, they voted and Libertas really stood out. Can you tell us about the work at your center and what you plan to do with the $50,000 grant? Yes. Yes. I also just want to echo what you just said in, in that the other organizations that we were on on this grant with just they all do incredible work and really honored and privileged to to have been a part of that group. And for Libertas, yes, so as you mentioned, we are a program under the Department of Emergency Medicine at Elmhurst Hospital in Queens, New York. We're part of Health and Hospitals, the New York City Public Hospital System. And our program provides comprehensive medical, mental health, legal and social services to individuals who've survived torture and persecution in their home countries on the basis of race, religion, ethnicity, political opinion, membership in a social group, be that sexual orientation or gender, or some other aspect of their identity or beliefs. And the really the primary focus of our program is direct services, and that's largely focused on case management and care coordination, and then referrals to all, all the four service domains. And that's really the primary focus, but what we consider our second, third, and fourth pillars are 
education and training. We are affiliated with ICANN School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We are a teaching hospital. And so really we want to educate and train providers on how to best care for these patients. We do a lot of community awareness to spread the word about the needs of these individuals in our communities. We do research on best practices, and then we do policy advocacy to really bring about changes in policy as well as systems changes to help our clients um, live fulfilling lives and resettle here in the U.S. When you say policy, can you give us some examples of the sort of policy work that you guys are doing? Yes. Yeah. So we as an organization are a member of the New York Immigration Coalition here in the city. We're also a member of the National Consortium of Torture Treatment Programs, which is about 35 programs across the country that provide similar services and care for this population. We are also a member of the International Rehab Council for Torture Victims, which is the IRCT based in Denmark. And that's kind of the global organization of of programs across the world that do this work. And some examples of policy changes that we've advocated for are for right now, for example, one that we're currently working on and is the incredible asylum backlog that we have here in the U.S. There are currently 180,000 asylum seekers who are waiting for their cases to be heard, with many of these individuals waiting as long as six to eight years. And this is in part because of lack of staffing to hear these cases, and in part because there was a recent, during the last administration, a policy that they put into place called last in, first out, which means that instead of when, when individuals apply for asylum, instead of hearing those cases kind of going down to the list, who applied first, and then kind of working your way down the list, they flipped it. And so the individuals who applied more recently, those cases were heard first, and the individuals who were in the backlog kept getting pushed back further. And because of this, the wait times have increased as long as six to eight years, as I mentioned. And so right now we're working collectively as a national consortium to advocate in with members of, of Congress. And we've gotten multiple members of Congress on board to draft a letter to really advocate for more staffing changes and policy changes to reduce that backlog. We've also worked to kind of eliminate the one-year filing deadline because right now when when individuals come to the U.S., if you come on a temporary visa or if you enter it across the border, you have one year to file for asylum, which is really not that long considering that individuals often don't know that that's that's the case. They don't know how to apply. They don't speak the language. They don't have a lawyer. We've applied to end immigration detention, which is really really difficult for individuals who have survived torture and come here and they're in detention, which is equivalent to being in jail. So we've really been advocating to kind of end that. Those are some of the issues that we've been um, advocating for collectively as a national consortium, then here in the city through the New York Immigration Coalition, to really have the voices of our clients heard by those in power and have the ability to make these changes. Yeah. Well, there's so much bureaucracy surrounding refugee and immigrant status that you guys are playing a role in something that might seem like it's not healthcare, but as you know, the social determinants of health, someone's immigration status and all of that surrounding their existence and ability to be here in the United States is so critical. 
What specific health challenges faced by refugees and immigrants are overlooked in mainstream healthcare? Yes, thank you for that question. Really important. I, I I can't think of a population where the social determinants of health play out uh, more than this population. Um, they're all immigrants, and then as the second, so they have the challenges that all immigrants arriving in a new country face. But in addition, they've survived severe physical and or, or and mental and sexual violence against them. And so when they arrive here, they have multiple needs. Just amongst our, in terms of health needs, have multiple social needs and health needs and legal needs, but in terms of specifically health needs, among our Libertas population, over 60% of our, of our clients have PTSD, over 50% have depression, and 90% have either both or one of those diagnoses. So from a mental health perspective, mm-hmm. They're severely traumatized, and essentially every single patient that we have at Libertas has has suffered psychological trauma. Uh, a large number of them have also suffered medical medical injuries as a result of physical torture, and that ranges from beatings, wounding and maiming, rape and sexual violence, asphyxiation, burning, sensory deprivation, and so there's a whole gamut of medical needs, orthopedics, gynecological, neurological, traumatic brain injuries. And then what's really challenging with this population is that oftentimes because they have such pressing social needs that until those are addressed, it's really difficult to start addressing their health needs. So it's really important to look Mm -hmm. at them um, and their needs holistically. So when they come to us, if they don't have a place to sleep, if they don't have food, you got to address those before the patients can start to think about or really start to address mm-hmm. their healthcare needs. At the same time, the legal issue is a, such a huge, huge issue, understandably, for our patients that that's really at the forefront of their minds. And you're, you're trying to talk to them about their health needs, but they're saying, you know, we don't have a place to sleep. I'm worried I'm going to get deported. So it's really important that you understand what their most pressing needs are and help to start addressing those. And then they have the the ability to then focus on their health needs. And it's all really interconnected because over 45% of our referrals to Libertas actually come from attorneys in the community. And what we hear time and time again is the attorneys say, you know, I have a client here. I want to help them file their asylum case, but they're not able to tell me what happened to them. And I need I need that history mm. to be able to file their case. And they tell us, can you please work with this client to get them to talk? Understandably, these mm. individuals are severely traumatized. It's really difficult for them to talk about their trauma in painstaking detail, which is what is needed for them to file their asylum case. And so they need the mental health care to help them kind of work through their symptoms and be able to talk about what happened and essentially relive that history to write their personal statements and be able to get the legal help that they need. And that legal piece is essential for them to feel safe. And when they feel safe, then they can start addressing their health needs. At at the same time, if you don't, you know, if you have chronic pain or if you have orthopedic injuries from from your torture and trauma, it's really difficult to resettle, especially in, in, in a 
in urban city like New York, where you take public transportation, where it's often walk-up apartments, if you're not able to walk up to your apartment, if you're not able to walk in and out of the subway to get to your medical appointments, then you're not going to be able to get the care that you need. Um, similarly, if you're really depressed and you're not able to get up and get dressed and get out, or if you have severe PTSD, we do have patients who have agoraphobia. They're afraid to leave the house. Um, they're hypersensitive, hyperarousal when they hear loud sounds outside, when they see you know, MTA police officers or just general NYPD, anyone in uniform, if they're perpetrators or government authorities, that's a trigger for them. So it's difficult for them to leave home and do the activities that they need to resettle, whether it's to find housing or to get to their lawyer or to get to their medical appointments. So they need that care to be able to function and get out and be able to do all the things that they need. So Really, all these aspects of care are very interrelated in helping them to begin their path to recovery. Mm -hmm. And okay, I have so many, so many follow-up questions to this, but maybe just give us an idea of where the majority of the patients you're serving are coming from and how they ended up in New York City. Yes, yeah. Geographically, we, we serve patients from all over the world, very similar to the hospital that we're located at. Um, we are located in, in the borough of Queens in New York City, which is the most ethnically diverse borough in the city. We serve, Queens has over 1 million of the 3 million immigrants in New York City, and the area around the hospital has the largest percent of foreign-born citizens, ranging from 60 to 65%. And this is reflective of all patients served at our hospital. And at Libertas, similarly, we have patients from over 65 countries speaking over 75 different languages. About a third of our, our patients come from Central and South America, about a third from Africa, largely West Africa, and about a third from Asia, uh, including Central Asia. And then we have about... Two to three percent from the Caribbean. And in terms of demographics, we have about equal, almost equal male and female with a few percent of gender nonconforming patients. Um, and the, the largest percent of patients are between 80 and 18 and 44 years when they first present to our center. And how does your team manage? the language barriers, the cultural barriers. I've, I've seen your team. It does seem quite diverse, but you also just listed a ton of places that are very different. And I'm curious how you guys handle the, yeah, the cultural and language barriers. Um, such a great question, Hallie. And, and again, this, this challenge that we have at Libertas is very similar to what we see with our patient population throughout the hospital we are very, very lucky to be um, at Elmhurst Hospital because the hospital is just equipped and familiar with caring for the diversity in culture and languages in the community that we serve. And we see an incredible diversity in the staff in the hospital itself, many of whom speak multiple languages. The hospital itself has 24-7 phone interpretation and 24-7 video interpretation. And then during the day and actually often into the evening hours, we can get in-person interpretation if we need. And the hospital has supported us in this capacity. And we're very fortunate because 
We know our colleague programs that are standalone programs, this is a big cost for them, and it can be really cost prohibitive to get linguistically appropriate services. We're very, very lucky to be able to get that at the hospital. Among our clinical team, everybody speaks a second language. That's very helpful. But still, one of the challenges we do have in our program is because we have such a diversity of languages and cultures, it is harder than perhaps programs which have a majority of clients coming from one part of the world. But we do use phone interpretation and video interpretation for all our follow-up visits. But when we do intakes with clients, which is when they first come in and we get their torture history, or when we do the forensic medical and mental health evaluations, which again is getting the history in detail, then we largely use in-person interpreters if our staff don't have that language capacity and we are able to get that through the hospital. And then for cultural, really being culturally sensitive, again, we try to have staff from all different parts of the world and really do a lot of training of our staff to really learn about cultural nuances, different idioms of distress that are present in different cultures. And that is, this is critically important, especially because we practice medicine here and healthcare from often a Western lens, and that's not where our patients are coming from. So really kind of understanding what we, what we typically think of as therapy here is can be a foreign concept to individuals who have not been familiar with this and not been exposed to this in their cultures. So for example, we'll have we'll have some patients who say, no, I don't need therapy, but they will come and meet with our clinicians every week and talk to them. But it's framed differently. It's framed as they're coming to see them. So really we try to understand kind of their perspective and uh, kind of work with them to to frame their care in the way that they see it because it doesn't have to be labeled a specific way. And then also to really, I think, working with this population, it's critically important to be able to empower them. They've really had all sense of control stripped away from them when they were tortured. Their families were ripped apart from them. So really trying to give them back that empowerment, really kind of working with them to understand what are their priority needs. And we can make recommendations but really having shared decision-making, which is part of the model of trauma-informed care, is really, really important in working with them. So really kind of understanding their perspective, their cultures, it requires a lot of education on our part. And it's very interesting, as, as, as we always tell um, you know, folks that we meet, I think we learn as much, if not more, from our clients as I hope that you know, we're able to, to give them and assist them with. Yeah. So trauma-informed care is often touted as this effective approach to treating survivors of torture. Can you describe this framework for our listeners? And maybe if you could share three things that any providers that are listening should know about trauma-informed care in in their practices. Yes. Um, I would say you use trauma-informed care. It's probably one of the biggest, the most important pieces is to listen to the client and to ensure that the message that you're giving is it's what happened to them that was beyond their control. There were certain events that they were profoundly harmed by. To understand what that experience was like for that client, 
because it is different for every individual and to really meet them where they're at. And and I think that's really, really, really critical. It's very important. I would say number one, if I had to say three things, is number one, safety. The client needs to know that they're in a safe space. So when they come to meet with you, to know that this is a safe space, this is a confidential space, safety is very important. Number two, building trust. Really, they have to be able to trust you and know that you are there for them and everything that they tell you is confidential, which can be a foreign concept depending, even in the healthcare field, in all parts of the world, there may not necessarily be the HIPAA rules that we have today. And so really, and these patients are so vulnerable because until they get asylum, they're worried, will they be deported? You know, what's going to happen to them to make them understand you're not going to report them to USCIS or the government or ICE, you're in a healthcare facility, they're protected. So really building that trust so that they're able to talk with you so that you can provide them the care that they need, safety, trust, and I would say number three is collaboration. So really giving them the power and the autonomy to make decisions. For us not to dictate to them, we can make, again, we can make recommendations, we can, we can and we should. It's kind of our responsibility to assess what's going on and to let them know these are the recommendations that we would make for your health care, but to really give them that autonomy to make the decisions on what they want to prioritize once they have the information that they need. We'll be right back after the break. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Can you share an anecdote or case study of a person or family that you've served that really exemplifies the transformative effect of specialized care and trauma-informed care on a survivor's life? Yes. Yes. 
We've had, I would say, um, thankfully, you know, several different examples of that. And one that comes to mind off the bat is we have a client from, from Africa, very accomplished, brilliant writer and playwright. And we actually, she, she came into our program during COVID and we hadn't had the chance to meet her in person. And every year we participate in World Refugee Day. And last year I was at our, we were finally back at World Refugee Day in person, having gone through the pandemic where everything was virtual. And we were there, we table at World Refugee Day, our clients participate. Um, we, we were at the table and this client came and we started talking. I met her for the first time. Lovely, um, accomplished individual. And she told me, she said, you know, Dr. Fernando, I did not realize until I came to Libertas and until your doctors saw me, I did not realize that the reason I wasn't able to leave the house, the reason I would wait till late at night to go do my laundry was because of my PTSD. And after I came to your program and I got the care that I needed, I realized that this is a normal symptom of PTSD. She had agoraphobia. And once I started getting care, I was able to get out of my apartment, um, go about doing my daily activities. She's able to start writing again. She's published mm. another book. Her play was performed wow. at the Lincoln Center. <laughs> And so did you go to it? Yes. And she is, <laughs> oh, amazing. she is now in an academic position at an Ivy league university. And, oh, and, uh, and this is just one. And, and I have to say, even for me, I, I was really moved because she came up and told me that and clearly, you know, so accomplished, mm. like so many of our clients and just just getting that care, and she actually saw you know our clinical team and one of our psychiatry residents who works with us to get that care, and how that was so mm -hmm. transformative for her to be able to really reclaim her life after she yeah. got that care. Yeah, what rewarding work! And to be able to follow the success cases probably helps helps you sustain in such a emotionally heavy field. Yes. I, yeah. I, I, in, in my role, I, at Libertas in my role, I do a lot of programmatic stuff, grant writing, fundraising, program development. But I have to say, really the, the most fulfilling aspect of this work is every time we have client contact. Of course, our clinical team does that every day. For me, Anytime I get to interact with our clients, that that is such a good reminder for me of, again, bringing me back to why we're doing this work, who these people yeah. are, to really be able to interact with them. It's just such a privilege, honestly, that they share their lives with us. It's such a privilege. And, and that's really what fuels our yeah. work. So what inspired your interest in global refugee and immigrant health? Yeah, so I'm originally from Sri Lanka and I came here with my sister when I was 16, she was 18 to get a higher education. And I have to say it was my um, my sister who she's two years older than me who said, I will, I only want to come to the U.S. because the U.S. is the land of opportunity. It's 
the land where you can be anything you want to be. And she was right. And, you know, when we came here, it wasn't necessarily the easiest road for us because we had to figure out a way financially and in all different aspects. But we were very lucky, incredibly lucky to have had the opportunity to get an education here. And having come from a developing country, I'm fully, fully aware of the of the lack of resources that many parts of the world experience. And, and this also in my personal life, because my dad, when I was very young, needed to undergo bypass surgery. And because my family was living abroad, my dad was working abroad, he was able to have that surgery. And if we were in Sri Lanka at the time, there was no bypass surgery available. I would have lost my dad and he was very young and in his 40s. My sister and I were really young, under 10 years old. And that has really stayed with me. And so when I came to the U.S., I always had, I knew I wanted to go to medical school, but I always wanted to give back to communities that don't have the resources that developed countries do. And so I so was always interested in global health, immigrant health, all through medical school and residency. And when I was applying for residency, one of the biggest draws of the, Mount Sinai, because I trained there, uh, emergency medicine residency program was its affiliation with Elmhurst Hospital, which is the, the safety net hospital, because the population that Elmhurst serves is immigrants and refugees and asylum seekers. And that's the community I wanted to serve. And as a resident, I started working with my two attendings, my two mentors, who are the founders of Libertas. But they had the vision and the foresight to see the community we served and to understand the need for such a program. And when I started working them with them as a resident, I first started learning how to do the forensic medical evaluations. Uh, and that's when I first got involved with this work. And when I was working with them, we did a cross-sectional survey in our emergency department at Elmhurst, where we surveyed about 500 patients to, to get a sense of how many torture survivors were coming in through the emergency department, because we had the sense that there were a good number but we didn't really have the data. And when we did that study, 11.5% of them, of the, of the patients who we surveyed, of the 500 patients, self-identified as torture survivors. And when we applied the UN Convention Against Torture Definition to those responses, that narrowed it down to 6.5%, to be a little more stringent, which may not seem like a lot, but our ED is very high volume. We have over 100,000 visits to the ED every year. So 6.5% translates to a few thousand patients walking in through our doors. And this was the, the data that we needed, and this is the data that helped us get grant funding. And it made a lot of sense because one of the reasons why I chose to go into emergency medicine is that the ED is really a safety net for patients who don't speak the language, don't understand the U.S. healthcare system, don't have insurance. You can walk into any emergency department and by federal law, you have to get care. And so it made perfect sense that these torture survivors who, again, had the same barriers as many immigrants, no insurance, don't speak the language, don't understand the U.S. healthcare system, were walking in through our doors. And really, that kind of showed us the need for this in the community. And that's really what was the impetus to 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 expand the program from a volunteer program into a comprehensive grant-funded program. Wow. And I imagine that the work that you've done for many years now 
has been impacted by COVID. Can you talk about how the work at Libertas and just the emergency room care that you were just describing has been affected by the pandemic? Yes. Thank you for that question. I have to pause for a minute because I really feel it's so difficult, nearly impossible to really explain the experience that we had during COVID. As I think you might be aware, our hospital was the epicenter of the epicenter. We were, the the community that we served was just absolutely devastated by the pandemic. Devastated in ways that are really indescribable. We went in in our emergency department from having zero COVID patients to 200 in the waiting room to 400 in the waiting room within a matter of days. And then we had our entire emergency department became a COVID zone. Our critical care area went from seven beds to 30 beds within a matter of days. And the reason for this is we are again in a largely immigrant community. Uh, These individuals live in multifamily households without the ability to isolate and quarantine. They work in frontline jobs where they, again, did not have the luxury of working from home or working virtually. And so the community was just decimated. So, so many deaths, really tragic, really, really tragic. And when this happened, pretty quickly, we switched to being completely remote at Libertas. And, you know, not surprisingly, our Libertas patients were profoundly impacted. In in March of 2020, when the pandemic hit, we did a very quick needs assessment when we went remote. And then we repeated the needs assessment a few months later. 87% of our Libertas clients lost employment. 53% had food insecurity. Over 50% lost their utilities, including phone, internet. Over 50% did not have baby supplies. Um, And when we saw this need, this profound need, we just had to kind of pull the brakes back on what we did on a day-to-day basis. And we said, look, everything is virtual. Our patients don't have phones. They don't have internet. They can't access care. When they needed food, we were looking up food pantries, which were running out of food. So they needed to be able to call. You know, we'd give them, okay, this food pantry has food, but you have to call like right before you go because things were changing minute by minute. And so when we saw this need, we just had to pivot from what we normally did. And what we did was we raised $250,000 for cash assistance through various grants. And then we implemented a cash assistance program. We distributed $250,000 in cash assistance. And we had to figure this out because we hadn't done this before. So, and that was a whole, you know, experience for us. We um, signed up for a platform where we were able to mail them cards. And then once they received the card, we were able to upload money onto the card. And this, this was for our clients to use it as they needed to prioritize, you know, getting communication, phone, internet, electricity, food, um, 
And so that was one of the pieces. We delivered over 350 boxes of food. Uh, we live in New York City. None of us had cars. We had to rent U-Hauls. We, we loaded these boxes in, of food in, in the U-Hauls. We broke it up into boroughs. And we had to go drop off the food again because of quarantine outside individuals' homes. Um, we mailed over 2,000 masks, uh, a whole lot of baby supplies, because this is what our clients needed to survive. It was, even though it was a health, you know, this was a pandemic, it was a COVID pandemic, health was at the forefront for our clients. Their biggest needs, again, shifted from health to really like the basics of living. And so that's, we, we had to address that before, you know, we focused on the health aspects. And in our needs assessment that we did, when we studied this afterwards, Really, the primary the primary needs were employment, food, and utilities, uh, and so we really kind of tried to pivot to help address our clients' needs to get those services that they needed. Wow, I have chills just hearing you describe this work and how challenging that was for your patients and for your team. I'm and so inspired by how dedicated you are to the the holistic lives that these patients are are trying to live and not just isolate yourself to the in-person care piece that you're trained to do. Medical school doesn't teach you how to bring boxes of food to neighborhoods that are in need. So thank you for sharing that. I have to follow up by asking how you and your team take care of yourselves. This is really difficult work. I'm sure just every day emotionally, you're hearing stories that are heartbreaking and we continue to live in a world where there are more and more refugees and people that are facing unimaginable torture and human rights violations. So how how do you guys take care of yourselves that you can continue to do this important work? Oh, thank you, Hallie, for that question. I, I think the most important factor in kind of dealing with vicarious trauma, because as you said, it is, it's very real when you hear about what our patients have endured, especially for our clinical team, kind of hearing these, these terrible histories day in and day out. I, I think the most protective factor is for us to support each other. I love my work family. I have no words to express how grateful I feel to be working at Elmhurst Hospital in our department and with our incredible staff at Libertas. The bonds are so strong. We always kind of joke to say, we feel like we're in the trenches, but it is true when you're in the trenches, those bonds become so strong. And just knowing that yeah. you have colleagues who have your back, to know that you can, yeah. uh, you know, in, in the emergency department, this holds true, it's holds true in the hospital and at Libertas, it's open door policy where you can always walk into someone's office if you need to talk, whether that's your supervisor or a peer. Um, if you need help, the whole team pitches in. If we have a client crisis, which does happen, um, everyone just picks up the pieces. You know, people there to support you. And I think just knowing that you have that support at all levels, again, your peers, your leadership, that's so protective. 
And mm-hmm. it's often mm-hmm. unspoken. You know, you can you can look at each other and you kind of understand what's going on. I think that is essential. Education and training so that you feel equipped to understand what your clients are facing, to have the skill set to be able to address that. I think that just helps to relieve the stress because when you don't know what to do, it's really stressful. So not that you may know what to do every time, but knowing knowing that you have the education and training and skill set and also knowing that you have a support system at the hospital, at Libertas, at the hospital, amongst our wonderful collaborators and organizations who we work with to be able to get clients help. I think that's really, really important so that you don't feel quite so helpless. Uh, and again, we are very mm-hmm. lucky. We, we could not do this work alone. We do not you know, do it alone. We don't work in a vacuum. It's really important not to have silos when you're caring for patients. We have wonderful partners at the hospital, like wonderful collaborators in our community. And I it just, we couldn't do this work without it. So really like putting our minds together to figure out how to solve issues that our clients face. Mm-hmm. And we're very lucky in New York City, there are so many organizations doing great work uh, and really open to collaborating and working to get clients the care that they need. Uh, And then just kind of trying to be mindful with your staff to, we have, you know, we have deadlines, we have crunch times, we have days when you have to work really late and everyone gives a thousand percent of themselves. We're really trying to be respectful and give our staff the time that they need to disconnect from work. And if they have their own personal emergencies to give them the time that they need for that. Um, I think it's really important in helping them maintain that work-life balance, which I have to say I am very much struggling with every day. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Dr. Fernando, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for the work you are doing. And again, congratulations. We're so proud to support you. Thank you so much, Hallie, and the heart of healthcare and um, all the reviewers, again, all the listeners, we can't thank you enough. All our voters, it means so much to us that you support our work. And I will just end by saying a huge thank you to our staff at Libertas, our incredible staff without whom this work would not happen, and our hospitals, Elmhurst and Mount Sinai, and the wonderful community that we live in, and above all the clients who we serve for your resilience and your spirit and your strength. Thank you. And listeners, please get on your phones right now. Go to libertascenter.net. Learn more about this work and donate. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Heart of Healthcare. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. The Heart of Healthcare is a product of Offscript Health. We are a healthcare engagement company built for patients and caregivers by patients and caregivers. Our executive producers are Matthew Zachary and Andrew McDowell. Our host is Hallie Tecco. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscriptnot.com. That's media at offscript.com. For more information, visit offscript.com. <laughs>